0: Hello, I'm Rachel Babin from the Oncology Network. Welcome to the OJC Meets, sister series of the Oncology Journal Club podcast. In today's episode, Chris Jackson meets Chris Booth to discuss the ins and outs of common sense oncology. Professor Christopher Jackson is Professor of Medical Oncology at the University of Utago, Dunedin, New Zealand, who holds national and international roles in the management of colorectal cancer. Professor Chris Booth is a medical oncologist and Professor of Oncology and Public Health Sciences at Queen's University in Kingston, Canada. He holds the Canada Research Chair in Population Cancer Care. Both Chris Booth and Chris Jackson are founding members of the Common Sense Oncology movement. For more information, visit commonsenseoncology.org. We hope you enjoy listening. This is Rachel Babin, and this is the Oncology Journal Club
1: podcast. I'm joined by Chris Booth, who is the better of the Christophers on this podcast. Chris is the founder of the Common Sense Oncology Movement. Chris has an extraordinary publication record, over 300 publications. If you read Lancet Oncology, you'll see his name in pretty much every other issue of Lancet Oncology, and he's written a number of editorials and commentaries in JCO as well. It's an absolute privilege to have Chris on board here. Welcome, Chris. Thanks, Chris. Good afternoon from Canada and good morning in New Zealand. Global oncology and cancer policy are certainly the road less traveled, right? You know, for medical oncologists, we often do clinical trials fellowships. You did a clinical trials fellowship too. That's yes. quite common. How do you end up in global policy and cancer policy?
2: It's a great question, Chris. And I probably would have had no idea I'd end up doing this if you'd asked me when I was a medical student. I think it came throughout training and then in my early years of clinical practice, where I became increasingly interested in the really big picture issues in our field. And I was much less interested in molecular pathways, probably because I wasn't very good at cancer biology and could never understand it. But I was more interested in where we were going as a field, the really big picture policy questions about the public health element of cancer care, what patients really value, and I had the privilege of you know living and working and traveling in, in quite a few different health systems around the world, and that really got me interested in the concept of global oncology, which is really taking all of these concepts and, and applying them to health systems around the world.
1: yeah, so spent more time studying political cycles than perhaps the citric acid cycle.
2: yes, yes, I wish i'd, I'd even done more of that. I studied history as an undergraduate and if I had to go back and do it again, I'd probably take a lot more philosophy and political science as well as economics too.
1: Yeah, and who have your mentors been over that time in the field?
2: I continued to be mentored by a number of you know really remarkable individuals in our field. So when I was in an internal medicine trainee, I was mentored by an internist in Toronto named Alan Detsky, who is one of the early health policy researchers in North America, who actually had a combined kind of P- MD PhD in economics, which is quite unusual at the time. So that was during internal medicine. And then in my medical oncology training in Toronto, I had the distinct privilege of working under Dr. Ian Tannock, who I'm sure many of your listeners will be familiar with, who was really one of the ultimate big thinkers in our field and really opened my eyes to some of the the big issues to think about in oncology. And then when I came to Queen's, initially as a fellow in clinical trials and then moving into a career as a faculty member in health services research – I was mentored by Dr. Elizabeth Eisenhower and Dr. Bill McKillop. And Elizabeth and Bill are both really big picture thinkers. Elizabeth is a clinical trialist, but who really sees the continuum of the whole cancer system. And Bill McKillop was probably, you know, one of the founders of the entire concept of cancer health services research when he built the unit where I I work and I'm now the director of in the late 80s and early 1990s, the Division of Cancer Care and Epidemiology.
1: A lot of your work has been commenting and analysing FDA policies, drug access issues in the US, for example. You know, Canada is to the US what New Zealand is to Australia, right? How is your work as a Canadian received by your American neighbours?
2: Yeah, I must admit, a lot of our work is focused on kind of the global policy space. We've certainly done a lot of, of work looking at FDA regulatory decisions and value, but Probably the biggest or the most meaningful work in that space that I've done has come from work at the global level with the WHO Essential Medicine list, which really has connected me with a network of of colleagues of academics, oncologists and investigators from around the world from both high-income countries and lower and middle-income countries who care about these issues and have led to a number of really, really dynamic, productive and fun collaborations where we've explored these issues about access, equity, value and outcomes in different health systems. And then from a global point of view, I had the distinct privilege of doing two months of my training in the South Island of New Zealand. And I also spent several months on sabbatical living in South India about seven or eight years ago. So I've really been lucky to to learn from colleagues in health systems around the world in some regards.
1: Yeah. And certainly having that, you know, global big picture view, I mean, that seems very much to segue nicely into the common sense oncology movement, right? You know, you can see how there's parodies in terms of practice in the US from other parts of the world. What have your observations been on the increasing gaps in clinical practice between, you know, high income countries like the US and other places?
2: Yeah, it's a great question, Chris. I think, you know, I've kind of increasingly recognized that oncology and global health in general is full of paradoxes. And one of the paradoxes is that while there are huge differences and gaps between what happens and the challenges and the care delivered in high-income countries and lower-middle-income countries, there's actually probably more similarities than I would have initially recognized until I, you know, lived and worked in, in some of these places. And so, certainly, as the costs of our therapies have accelerated – There's an increasing risk even within high-income countries like New Zealand and Canada and the U.S. and the U.K., where there's widening gaps between which segments of society and populations have access to new therapies and which ones do not. And, of course, these are compounded many times over looking at very low-resource countries and the care that they're able to provide. And so one of the interesting observations, though, is that in some of these lower- and middle-income countries where their cancer health system is really coming into its element in the last number of years is we see these challenging decisions whereby the fundamental elements of care might not yet be widely available, yet perhaps well-meaning but very ambitious policymakers or decision makers are advocating for very, very expensive new technology that in fact actually has small benefits. So there's some real challenges both where you and I work in a high-income country, which is, you know, there are gaps in access to the fundamental elements of care within some segments of our populations. But there's also, I think we would argue, probably a lot of overutilization utilization of, of marginal and toxic treatments within our context. And I see that playing out as well, and perhaps maybe even amplified in some regards, certainly with the lack of access to core services with uh, experiences, you know, by many of our, our colleagues and friends that work in
1: lower-middle-income countries. So do you think that oncology is losing its way, Chris? I
2: think it is. I think that, you know, this is, as you well know, Chris, is one of the founding kind of leaders with the Common Sense Oncology initiatives, is that there are really many things that we do well in our field. Some of our treatments are truly transformative. The outcomes of many cancers are improving. We're much more attuned to issues that matter to patients now, like quality of life, survivorship, psychosocial oncology. But I think there are warning signs that we need to recalibrate or you know reconsider some of the things that we're doing that might not benefit patients as much as the patients think nor as much as we think. And I think that was really the genesis behind the Common Sense Oncology Initiative was to recognize those treatments which make a big difference for our patients, celebrate the clinical trials which truly advance care for patients, and be the loudest advocates for those treatments that make a difference – so that regardless of where someone lives in the world, they get access to those and on the flip side, we wanted to create a culture and a community where we would be willing to be self-critical and look inward and reflect and have some humility to recognize that some of our treatments are actually pretty modest and perhaps sometimes very marginal benefits and in certain circumstances might cause more harm than good. And we believe very deeply, of course, that we can do better for patients and patients expect better. And so that was really, I think, the impetus behind this you know, organic movement that has really you know, exploded in the last few months.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the immunotherapy revolution, we're seeing people with, you know, DMMR colon cancer and other GI cancers cured, right? You know, I mean, some of the changes have been huge, eh? And then on the other hand, you've got PFS gains of 1.4 months with some other therapies, which are celebrated with standing ovations.
2: It is incredible. You know, when I speak to patient groups or the media, I, I use this bucket analogy where I think we have three buckets of cancer therapies. We have one bucket of therapies which are truly transformative. They cure patients they had many years of life, you know, BEP for testes cancer, imatinib for CML, immunotherapy for melanoma. Some of the new breast cancer drugs are in that really transformative bucket. We have a second bucket of treatments which do make quite a big difference. They're not transformative, but they really are useful and offer patients substantial improvements in outcome. And then we have a third bucket, which is full of drugs that either have no proven benefit, they help people live longer or live better, or if there is a survival benefit, it's measured in a number of weeks or a couple months in a clinical trial, which of course is always attenuated in routine practice. And I think our field, out of a well-meaning place of optimism and hope, I think we've conflated those three buckets, and it's led to this perpetual narrative of hype and game changers, and transformative breakthroughs, so that patients, the public, and policymakers, and even within our own field, we don't distinguish the immunotherapy for melanoma from the regorafenib for advanced colon cancer. And clearly, those are two very, very different entities representing bucket one and bucket three. And so, one of the things I think we need to do a better job of within our field is having honest conversations and more clearly communicating the relative benefits as well as the downsides of all of these therapies.
1: Yeah, separating the wheat from the chaff, right? Yes, yes. And you know, the elephant in the room there is the profit motive in terms of both pharmaceutical companies and also, to an extent, the prescribers.
2: Yeah, so this is a huge, huge challenge, which is you know the massive financial pressures in the cancer system. And so, I was asked by a journalist in the US a couple months ago who was kind of flabbergasted when i told him the story of cancer care because most people don't realize that we have some of these challenges they assume that everything we do has transformative benefits and he asked me he said how do we get in this situation and i thought about that over the last few months and the conclusion i've come to and my current thinking is that we've landed in some of these problems because of a convergence of two very powerful factors and those factors are hope and money the hope is the idea that our patients are hoping for good outcomes. They're looking for treatments that will help them. The doctors, the nurses, the policymakers, the politicians, everyone's hoping for the best, wanting to offer something. Everyone's intentions are in the right place. So there's a very, very strong driver of hope that I think sometimes may lead us and our patients in the system to deliver treatment that has small benefits with the idea that we're hoping it'll do more than maybe it really will. So that's hope. But on the other side, it's money. And it's not, I don't think, as simple as you know, doctors getting consulting fees from pharma and then prescribing low-value care, but the entire cancer care delivery system and research ecosystem in many parts of the world is driven by money that comes from the sales and research of cancer medicines. And this is just the reality of the economic model that we live in and the fact that pharmaceutical companies, as you well know, largely dictate the clinical trials agenda in our field So there's money flowing into hospitals and trials groups, there's research dollars going to institutions. In some parts of the world, not in Canada, but in some parts of the world, the hospitals and the physicians make more money through markups from their chemotherapy. So at every step of the care pathway, money has a huge, huge influence on where things are going. So I think it's this powerful collision of hope and money that have created a lot of problems and the solutions are going to be very complex and certainly... As you well know, when the small group of us got together to conceptualize the idea of common sense oncology, we certainly did not have clear cut solutions in mind. But the idea was to talk about these issues, normalize them, socialize them and engage the community more broadly because we're going to need everyone's creative input and intellect to try to tackle some of these challenges in the
1: coming years. And how is the common sense oncology movement going?
2: It's really exceeded our expectations probably hundredfold as far as the level of interest and the enthusiasm with which it's been greeted. So, as you all know, members of our community, and, and I should mention to your listeners, that although this was kick-started with a very small meeting of 30 oncologists, academics, editors, and patient advocates here in Kingston, Canada, it was a small planning meeting, it's now a broad-based coalition of engaged stakeholders from across the world and across the cancer care continuum. From patients and advocates and public policymakers, investigators, and clinicians. And so certainly welcome any of your listeners to please consider joining the, the CSO movement and you can direct them to our website maybe at the end of the show. So it's been very, very well received. Members of the CSO community have been invited to speak at almost every major meeting around the world. We have been privileged to have A lot of our work highlighted in the major journals of our field. We'll be doing a special Common Sense Oncology Symposium at the annual ASCO meeting in Chicago in 2024, and we've had a lot of interest from the regulatory agencies worldwide, our major societies and organizations, as well as research funders. Probably the most powerful and gratifying comments I get are letters from current patients or the family members of patients who have since died writing with their own experience and words of encouragement that they think that there's really the, these honest conversations as difficult as they are to have really need to happen within the field more broadly and I think that's probably what drives a lot of everything you know we do is to try to make things better for patients and families that are walking the cancer journey
1: so people can join the common sense oncology movement and we'll link to the website in our show notes can people donate to the movement chris
2: Yeah, that'd be extremely helpful because suffice it to say the pharmaceutical companies aren't rushing to give us money. Not that we would accept it if they were, of course. Yes, so we have our affiliations in North America are with Queen's University in Canada and the University of California, San Diego in the US. So anyone in the US that would like to contribute, we have a dedicated CSO account. So every dollar that goes to UCSD comes to the Common Sense Oncology Group. For listeners outside the United States who'd like to make a donation from our website, they can come to the Queen's University webpage and again Every dollar that's donated to the Queen's website will come to CSO. And we're using those funds to hire some staff to really grow this organization, but also... We have an aspirational goal of of training the next generation of oncologists, clinicians, and policymakers through Common Sense Oncology Fellowships, but also eventually having open public meetings to provide educational scientific updates in the field, and also if we have enough funds to run small pilot grants so that clinicians, patients, policymakers around the world could apply for funding and receive seed funding to launch a project in a new care pathway or a new educational tool or a new policy approach that is consistent with the Common Sense Oncology vision. So we're in the active kind of fundraising phase, but it's been well received. As you know, Chris, we received a donation from a retired oncologist in the US, and we're launching the first fellowship in Common Sense Oncology here at Queen's in July, and so we're very excited to move into that phase of, of our program.
1: Uh, so if listeners want to support um, the CSO movement, again, check out the website and you can make donations there. Chris, I've got some quickfire questions pivoting slightly away from Common Sense Oncology for you. What's been the biggest step forward in oncology in the last 12 months? Hmm.
2: I always say that within our field of GI oncology, I think the greatest advances that have come in the last couple of years, at least two of them, are the idea collaborative, which de-escalated care for a huge number of our patients and spared them the risks of neuropathy, and the series of clinical trials which showed that we can get patients off of daily, lifelong, low-molecular-weight heparin injections and put them on the oral agents. So, those are clearly, I think, two of the biggest advances within GI oncology. Obviously, there's exciting things within immunotherapy and some of the other cancers as well as MSI colorectal cancer. But I think from a patient's perspective, the de-escalation of care within our field has been a huge advance.
1: What has been your favorite publication that you've authored this year?
2: Well, I think the CSO manifesto that we had in Lancet Oncology, mostly because it represented a huge amount of work for the group of, you know, 30 of us that spent many, many hours debating these issues and thinking about it. And I think it's, for me, you know, as I'm well into my mid-career, from a personal point of view, you know, represented maybe a shift towards a research program that has identified problems in cancer care, towards this initiative which really seeks not just to identify problems but to be solutions focused and trying to change systems, cultures, mindsets and care pathways.
1: What's something that you've stopped doing in your clinical practice as a result of something you've learned recently?
2: One thing we're doing a lot of thinking about lately together with some colleagues you know well from CSO is the extent to which routine surveillance imaging is useful for patients with resected solid tumors. And so we have a a piece of work under review right now, and it's made me, I think, reflect on my own practice. As you well know, in colorectal cancer, there's some pretty solid rationale for doing surveillance imaging, and we do it all the time. But in the other solid tumors, especially in GI cancer, there's very limited rationale to do that. And although it's recommended in guidelines, I have some concerns that we might actually cause more harm than good to some of our patients through over-investigation excessive surveillance imaging in the absence of symptoms. So I'm starting to have very frank discussions with my patients after they undergo a resection of their pancreas or gastric cancer about whether, in fact, they would want to have surveillance imaging if they're feeling well.
1: Fantastic. What are you looking forward to most in 2024?
2: Well, In the very near future, I'm looking forward to having a surfing holiday with my family in Baja, California. So in the first week of the new year, we're going to be on the beach, hanging out in the sun, the sand, and doing a bit of surfing. So I'm looking forward to that.
1: That sounds pretty nice. Aaron Goodman might join you. Yes, yes. And final question, why is New Zealand so much better than Australia? (laughs) Because it's a lot like Canada. There we go. It's Professor Chris Booth telling truth bombs (laughs) on the OJC podcast. Chris Booth pulling back the curtains and shining sunlight on patient outcomes that matter, focusing our attention again on things that really matter to patients, directing research, which is focusing on those critically important issues that matter to patients, and challenging us to think about the value as well as the hype, to help us reflect on the fact that we shouldn't let our enthusiasm escalate ahead of the evidence. And we must remain critical thinkers at all times. Chris, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the OJC podcast. All the very best with the CSO movement. Listeners, check out the website, sign up and consider donating. Chris, great to talk to you.
2: Chris, thanks for including me. And in closing, I'll say Canadians do love our Australian colleagues, but we might feel an affinity to Kiwis because the Kiwis are quirky just like the Canadians. And I'll leave it at that.
1: (laughs) That's a strong note to finish on. You've been listening
0: to the Oncology Journal Club podcast, proudly produced by the Oncology Network. For regular news and podcast updates, we invite healthcare professionals to join us at oncologynetwork.com.au. Your free registration includes a free subscription to our weekly publication, the Oncology Newsletter, and it's a fantastic way to support the OJC. This is Rachel Babin, and this is the Oncology Journal Club podcast.